while we believe deeply in the role of teacher leaders, teacher teams, and the school um, as, a, as a really important unit of change, that school and those teams and educators live within a larger ecosystem. And that ecosystem can support the work or it can get in the way of the work. This is High Tech High Unboxed. I'm Alec Patton, and that was the voice of Tracy Frey Oliver, Vice President of the Bank Street Education Center at the Bank Street College of Education in New York City. For anyone unfamiliar with Bank Street, here's the deal. It was founded in 1916 as the Bureau of Education Experiments by Lucy Sprague Mitchell and a team of like-minded educators. Three years later, they founded a nursery school so they could learn from kids about how to create the conditions to support their learning. In 1930, the Bureau of Education Experiments moved to 69 Bank Street in Greenwich Village, which gave them their name. And then they just did cool stuff. In 1937, they created the Writer's Lab, which connected authors to student teachers. An early member was Margaret Wise Brown, author of Goodnight Moon. In 1954, they founded the School for Children, an on-site elementary school. In 1965, they helped create the Head Start program, and in 1984, they produced The Voyage of the Mimi, a 13-part TV series about the crew of a ship taking a census of humpback whales. Among other things, that show taught me what hypothermia is and how electromagnets work. And in 2014, they established the Bank Street Education Center in order to support public school districts to improve teaching practice across their schools. This, as teachers know, is where things usually go wrong. No teaching practice, no matter how effective, survives being standardized and mandated for teachers across a district. But that's not how they do things at Bank Street. And this is why our very own Stacey Callier, head of the Center for Research on Equity and Innovation at the High Tech High Graduate School of Education, was so excited to talk to Tracy. Because the Bank Street Education Center thinks about district-wide change in a totally distinctive way. Listening to this episode is like getting a telegram from a brighter future. Let's get into it. Tracy, I am so excited to talk with you today. Um, I just want to give a little intro to you because you're amazing and I want everybody to know how amazing you are. So Tracy Frey Oliver, you are vice president of the Bank Street Education Center in New York, um, an organization that's been a total inspiration for us at High Tech High since our beginning. You all were like one of the first to integrate K-12 schooling and teacher training and have a school that was both for children and a college of education. So you all have really been at the forefront of pushing for ways of teaching and learning that center justice, that honor young people's contributions to their communities, and that engage them in authentic learning experiences that engage the body, heart, and mind. So you are like our soul friends for sure. Um, And before we dig in, I have to share just a little bit about you. Uh, Before coming to Bank Street, you were a middle school math teacher, a math coach, an instructional specialist, and you worked for the New York City Department of Education as Director of Mathematics Curriculum and the Common Core Fellows Program. So you basically supported the city's transition to the Common Core Standards and then were a Senior Director of STEM. So you've been a key leader in defining New York City's approach to math and STEM education, as well as the Common Core Standards. You have lived and learned at every level of the system, and I am so excited to talk with you about all of that today. Hi, Stacey. Thank you for that introduction. I'm excited to speak with you today also. So just to get grounded in who you are, can you share just a little bit with us about how do you identify in the world and how does your identity show up for you in your work? Sure. A few identity markers. Okay. So I'm a Black and Latinx cisgendered, able-bodied woman. 
the daughter of immigrants, my mother from Haiti and my father from Ecuador. I'd add that I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, and I'm still here. Um, I'd also add that I'm a bereaved mother of an amazing, extraordinary Black boy who made it to third grade in our public schools here in New York. And while he's no longer on earth with us, he's very much alive within me and plays a really big role in how I make sense of the world. Um, with that said, I would add that at my center, I'm also an educator who works in service of social justice and equity. And what that has meant for me is that I show up in the world as someone who is conscious, spiritual, curious, optimistic, and hopeful, yet also critically reflective, a truth speaker, a teacher, a leader, um, an advocate, but always first and foremost, um, I'd say a learner. Can you share a little bit with us just about how did you come to continuous improvement? What was your story of arriving there and what was the appeal for you (laughs) or not? (laughs) I'd say early on in my career as a teacher and then a teacher leader, I participated in lots of different school structures that were designed to improve student outcomes and shift teacher practice, all using very different processes and protocols. And then as a coach and district leader, I spent time supporting educators doing similar work, but to think about how they might regularly reflect and shift their practice, all to provide better learning experiences for kids. However, when I left the New York City school system to come and help start the education center here at Bank Street, I started to become more familiar with continuous improvement in education through Tony Bright's work and and others. And the light bulb that went off for me at the time was that while this was really familiar work, in many ways, there was a promise with continuous improvement that felt different because of the ways in which it offered a science and a discipline to inquiry, but it also created space to interrogate the system and center the voices of those who were experiencing the challenges every day. So I was really excited to think about continuous improvement as less of a set of processes, but as a mindset. That so resonates with me. That was my hook with the continuous improvement too, was just the system scene and being able to really interrogate it, not just be solo educators trying to flip things, but really like stepping back and seeing it as a system that we needed to interrogate and redesign. So that really resonates. So I remember being at a meeting with you where a group of folks who were kind of leading this improvement work across the country were grappling with how to meaningfully integrate improvement work and equity work with the idea of like the experience of the two should be seamless, not this like we do some equity work, then we do some improvement work and never the two shall meet. (laughs) And you offered this beautiful analogy about it requiring all of us to be weavers. And I just wanted to give you a little space to say, what does that mean to you? Yeah, I'm glad that that stood out to you um, all that time ago. You know, I'd say that that excitement that I felt um, around CI was very real, but it was also quickly followed by a set of questions around what this looks like in practice and how useful or not it can be when it comes to dealing with the complexity of schooling in our country. So I've grappled a lot with how CI can be different from every other improvement effort in education, more specifically how 
CI can actually meet its espoused promise of equity. I wanted to think about how do we ensure that we move beyond the assumption, for example, that CI is inherently going to promote equity? And instead, how do we ensure that it does address the equity needs in our systems? And to be clear, I'm referring to racial equity in our school systems. I also want to make sure we're examining how do we start to socialize and normalize some of the principles of CI that really honor and regard student, parent, community educator voice, because those are the ones who really help us to understand how we can best serve them. So I would say that the idea of weaving really does honor that there are skills and talents in our systems, but there are also competing priorities and approaches that can come together to make this work um, meaningful and fulfill its espoused promises, but it takes us doing the work of deeply integrating and tackling those tensions together um, with some of that optimism that I had mentioned earlier <laughs> in my introduction. Yes, curiosity and optimism I think, <laughs> yes. are essential to the journey for sure. Is there a moment or like an experience that you have had where you're like, okay, this is it, like this is what we're after? And can you share that example or moment? Yeah, I would say that, you know, quite often when we're thinking about what are the change ideas or the interventions that we might put in place in a system, you know, we lean on research and we lean on the realities of what we're seeing on the ground and the voices of those experiencing the changes. And in a set of conversations we were having in a network meeting, we realized that the conversation was bringing to life so many intersecting and really important concepts. So we found ourselves not only wanting to identify research-based practices, but we wanted to speak to the identities of the students we were serving. That included their racial identity, other social identity markers, but also the reality that they were adolescents, that we were talking in this case about middle school students and how easily it is to forget that we're talking about children who are at a really unique point in their lives. And so as we were not only developing those change ideas, but then planning to study them, we realized how important it was to not just look at the data in isolation or follow a protocol or practice with fidelity, but to create the space to acknowledge the humanity in the work. And when we all kind of stepped back from looking at the data, it was like, wait, I'm talking about a sixth grader, you know, or I'm talking about a 10 or 11 year old child, a 10 or 11 year old black young girl in this community. Yeah. I love that. It reminds me of something that Eva Mejia said in our last podcast, just about like the goal of the work is not to like take the human out. It's to put the human back in. Absolutely. I love that. I'm curious how, like when you think about this, this goal of like weaving improvement work and equity work so that they are seamless and our networks are experiencing it that way. Um, how do you think about building your own team's muscles around that? Like, what do you what do you all do as a team? We are constantly learning, constantly reflecting on our practice, and that means actively engaging in professional development, um, embedded reflective cycles around our individual and collective work as an, an intermediary, um, but also more generally as an organization. It also means reflecting on our ways of knowing and being so that we're able to have really explicit conversations about 
what it is we are all still working to improve ourselves, but also to acknowledge our strengths and what we bring to the table and how we can be resources to each other. I would say that also means staying on the cutting edge of what's what's the, the research that's out. It means being on the ground alongside our partners. And so, yes, there's definitely a lot of learning. So our own professional learning, our own coaching, our own um, communities of practice and affinity groups and spaces, and the expectation that every individual is actively owning their learning and development, particularly around their um, social identities and racial identities. But then there's also the reality that we think the best way to learn is by doing. And so we are out there side by side with those, again, that we work in service of. Yeah. We often say you can't do the system work without the self-work. Absolutely. So you mentioned mindsets a moment ago, too. And in our last conversation, we talked about how we both noticed that in some of the CI work happening, CI is kind of treated like this goal, like, yay, we're doing CI, like that's the end. And there's a lot of emphasis put on the tools instead of the very human side of the work. And you shared in that conversation that you really want to see a mindset shift where folks are seeing that their real goal is to support systems to become more equitable. CI is an approach to get there. Can you say more about what that mindset shift will entail and what that requires of us? We like to say that if you think about a system taking on any instructional improvement efforts, it assumes that there has to be an acknowledgement of strengths in the system that can be built upon, but also a very clear goal and aim at the end of it. And if that aim is ensuring that everyone has the capacity to do CI, that is a very different conversation than saying we are ensuring that our system is collectively working towards equity for our most marginalized kids. And we're going to create a toolbox and habits of mind, knowledge, skills, mindsets that are embedded in our system to help us reach our goal. So what we try to do is really marry the idea of, yes, we're going to give you concrete tools, practices, strategies, um, ways of of working with um, real work around the kind of thinking routines, the mindset, the beliefs, the reflective and critically reflective practices that are necessary for the work to Um, sustain itself um, beyond, you know, whatever administration happens to be in place or whatever leadership might be there at the time, that really it's baking this into the culture and mindset of a system that will allow CI to have its intended impact. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. And I want to be clear that I know that that sounds good in theory and what that work has often looked like on the ground, to be really clear, has been a lot of side-by-side work ongoing engagement, not being limited to implementing your project or slowly your grant, but a real deep side-by-side partnership with the district or the organization to understand their context, model, but then also interrogate what are some of the challenges that are presented when you try to maintain this mindset, right? Our our systems ordinarily are not designed to to cultivate and and hold this type of mindset. So how do we name that explicitly and then have an unapologetic kind of relentless focus on the mindset building alongside the capacity building for the the actual tools and processes and, and structures? I have so many follow-up questions for you, Tracy. <laughs> 
I mean, first, what are the specific mindsets you're wanting to cultivate in people doing this work? For us, it has been being able to keep a few things in mind as you do this work. So there's obviously a need to understand the importance of development, and that is the development of humans, (laughs) the the idea that um, everyone develops and grows um, along a continuum, but at very different paces, and that looks differently. And I think when you can accept the idea that there is child and human development and that systems develop and, and change over time, that it allows you to see things as less fixed and see everything as being at a point in a journey or a continuum. And therefore it can move forward, it can move backward, but there's always opportunity for growth. Um, We're also very big on relationships. And I think this goes to your point earlier, Stacey, that when you realize that all learning is connected to relationships and that the brain is really activated through relationships, that any change is going to require some level of learning. And that means that we have to be relational in our work. So acknowledge the human side of things. And so that means sometimes a protocol can't just operate in the minutes that you've defined. That means there's an a flexibility that comes with the acknowledgement that you're working with humans and in relation with humans that we're really passionate about. Um, With that too, we think there's an equity mindedness that's necessary for this work. And that's a real awareness of the role that race has played in our country and all of the marginalization and oppression and systemic racism that's built into this system. And so recognizing that there's a lot that needs to be disrupted, interrupted, redesigned and imagined, and that takes time. Um, But it also takes a commitment that you just have to really um, stay focused on. Um, And I would say some other things we believe are really important is that there has to be the belief that everyone can grow, change, and learn. And I think if we can acknowledge that in this work, then it feels less hopeless than I often think people see it as, but instead that there's always a place to start and build upon. I would say another big part of our our approach and what we believe is that there has to be a value and an appreciation for, for observing and data generally. Like, are we really anchoring these decisions in evidence? And that data can look very different, qualitative, quantitative, um, observation and recording what you see children children do. So I would say data and having evidence that informs your thinking and an appreciation for it um, is also a really big part of, of the mindset and values that we think are central to CI being successful. Plus one, all of those. (laughs) I also have to ask, because you were talking beautifully about what it means to work at different levels of the system, which is part of why I was so excited to talk with you because you have worked at every level of the system and you continue to, to support folks at every level of the system. And I've been really struck by Bank Street's approach of being fairly like differentiated about like, here's how we work with folks at this level of the system. Here's how we work with folks at this level of the system, really acknowledging that people have different needs and may might have different um, approaches based on where they are within the system. Could you say a little bit just about how do you all think about supporting districts versus supporting school leaders versus supporting like school teams If you get a really strong teacher team operating, trying out new ideas, working on behalf of their kids, deeply understanding them, there is likely going to be some level of policy 
or guidance that is passed down by the school leader or maybe a district uh, a district leader or principal supervisor that can totally disrupt or get in the way of that work. So for example, CI really does encourage this idea of risk-taking and, and, mm-hmm. and trying out new things and, and really maintaining a learning stance and assumes a level of um, public learning and psychological safety that we're really excited to cultivate with the teacher team in school. But you could imagine that some level of compliance or some a mandate could come down that could totally disrupt that that um, energy that we've, we've been building with the team. And so our work is to not just think about working with those levels independently, but to think about the accountability that each level has to create conditions for the one before it. So um, very explicitly in working with teacher teams and cultivating all of the um, mindsets and skills um, and knowledge that I just mentioned, we work very closely with the principal to say, how do you ensure that those mindset skills and knowledge can thrive in your building? And as we're working with the school leader to think about that is like, well, okay, well, let's talk to the principal supervisors to say, well, in what ways are you acknowledging the efforts that the school leader might be taking to allow the teacher's work to thrive? What are some of the principal supervisor moves that you're making to not just not get in the way, but to also support it, cultivate it and, and help school leaders grapple with what's likely going to be hard because they're disrupting the system and doing something different. And then similarly for principal supervisors, we work with, you know, senior district leaders to say, you know, what is the role of a principal supervisor in the building? Sometimes they wear a coaching hat and an accountability hat. How does that run counter to them being able to create the conditions for a principal to try new things or be, um, courageous in in doing something that might not be understood immediately, but works in the best service of of kids. And so for us, it's about, I just would name that it's a combination of being real, being really intentional and targeted about the work responsibilities that each layer has, but then holding the surrounding (laughs) level accountable for um, creating the conditions for that other layer to thrive. And to be clear, that is not just saying, oh, how are you going to make sure you're being supportive or like allowing it to happen? But instead, how do you deeply understand what's happening, provide support, provide the learning needed for those folks to thrive in doing whatever it is they're taking on? I'm so glad that you touched on this because this was one of the things I wanted to pick your brain about Um, because (laughs) I think one of the things that I've really appreciated about continuous improvement is just that it requires participation at all levels of the system, ideally, and it's best when it disrupts kind of these traditional hierarchies of who has knowledge and who has expertise. And I've noticed that a lot of the networks, and we're guilty of this as well and grappling with it, tend to place a lot more emphasis, I think, on supporting teams of teachers and faculty to do the work, but engage much less frequently or meaningfully with school and district leaders. And I'm, I'm curious if this is something you've noticed as well, um, but also just like, do you have additional advice for folks doing this work about like how they can best engage system leaders to be effective? Our strategy is to really approach that level of the system in the way that we do all levels of the system that we absolutely need to make sure that we are identifying staff that has experience at that level, who's able to 
empathize, sit alongside, relate, take a listening ear, but also offer some expertise so that they can um, engage deeply in the work alongside system leaders. So being able to have a deep understanding of what it means to sit in those seats. Those are not easy seats to sit in. And I think if we are entering in a way that's not non-judgmental, but instead um, as a partner who can hold the mirror up and help reflect on their practice, that that level of the system is just as open to learning and growing as every other. I'd also say that at the level of the system, we have found that, you know, it's really important to be unapologetic and clear about the ways in which we perceive their role as being more than approving us as a partner or saying, yeah, come in and do that thing over there. Our expectation is that we are welcomed in as a thought partner, um, that we are embedded in the district in a way that is helpful and aligned to their their vision and um, as a support to carry through their priorities. So I would say to folks who are looking to engage system leaders is to recognize that there's a lot of thoughtful work happening at that level too. Um, And so there's a need to acknowledge the strengths that those leaders are bringing to the table, but also offer the um, reflection space and expertise that quite often district leaders don't have. It can be a very isolating job, those divisions often work in um, silos that are that are really challenging. So I would say that our approach to it is very similar to, to, to all the other ways we engage. It's rooted in um, not being judgmental, um, meeting folks where they are, offering expertise, but also more importantly, being willing to kind of get in there with them to figure things out. Yeah. Can you offer an, an example or two of how do you help orient like district or system leaders to the work of what's happening and make requests of them or offer supports? Like, what does that actually look like? Do you guys have any routines or? Yeah, there are a few things we put in place. So part of our partnerships with districts means that we're kind of upfront about the level of engagement we'd like. So we, you know, we do ask that they identify um, a primary contact, who has a level of influence and positionality in the district to be able to make decisions, to give us access to other key leaders in the system. Um, We do a lot of work to understand how the district operates, how, what does their learning, what do their learning structures look like, their decision-making processes look like, and then ask that our primary contact has some level of influence or at least the ability to navigate those structures. Um, And then we say very practically, um, our partnership includes things like biweekly strategic planning calls, the expectation that they're participating in the network alongside us, and that when we're engaging the district, I think this is really important that we wear multiple hats during those engagements, right? There's the part of it where we are definitely offering expertise, maybe teaching them about CI, helping them engage in some professional learning, but then we're able to kind of pivot within the same engagement to be able to take on a coaching conversation or to ask really targeted questions about um, how they might've been experiencing um, having to roll out an initiative or having to support a school leader with something Um, We would also in that same call be able to engage them in artifacts from the learning of the network so that they are so that we're honoring the reality that they're not just learners, you know, who are trying to understand CI. They are also trying to 
create the conditions in a whole system to have this work thrive. So I think it's the ability to kind of step in and out of a bunch of different lenses. And and I have found that district leaders really appreciate that. Um, They want to learn, but they also want to know that we recognize that they either have to roll out a policy or they need to engage in a direct conversation with an administrator um, or they need to advocate for a set of resources. And so, yes, I would say that some really concrete moves we make are everything from creating structures to having really targeted initial conversations during our recruitment and engagement and then we walk in with clarity and and real explicit requests for what the partnership would look like um, in a way that um, is definitely a conversation, but could not be something that every district partner would want. And so I think it's also having the clarity and conviction to say that there are a set of values and beliefs we have as an organization and recognize that there may be partners who are not ready for that. Um, So we try in our initial engagements to assess, you know, is there a readiness here from the partner to engage in these types of practices? Um, And more often than not, districts are ready for that level of collaboration and engagement. Um, And I think we bring to to bear a bunch of of resources and, and, and supports that are useful. But but try to be really explicit up front around how we think change happens um, and, and negotiate that from the very beginning. That's so helpful. Thank you. So I have to ask you some system change questions since we just kind of went there because you've been engaged in system work for years. And I feel like there's few systems as large and nebulous as the New York City (laughs) Department of Education. I'm curious where you've seen efforts to shift the system go awry, like if there's any common pitfalls. Yeah, I would say every time we get ahead of educators, (laughs) um, (laughs) every time system leaders think they know more or better than um, the children, the, the, the educators, the families. So I would say that a, a big takeaway for, for me and, and something I'd emphasize is that at the heart of systems change is really understanding that for systems level change, there is a need to have a proximity to the classroom and to children that is just essential for, for change to happen effectively. I would say another thing that's really important is to attend to that coherence. I, I mentioned earlier, it is so easy for one division or one department to move full speed ahead without thinking through the implications for another um, division or for kids, right? That you know, children don't experience every department of the, of the central office. They experience a set of learning experiences that day with their teacher in the classroom. And so being able to kind of step outside of ourselves at the district level to say, you know, yeah, the titles and the offices are, are helpful for, for, for what they're doing here in our day-to-day work, but they're not what matter most when we're trying to ensure that all kids are receiving the education they deserve. And so I would say those are two things that are really important to me in this work is breaking down those silos and creating the coherence and consideration for what it means for a kid. And then, of course, centering the voices of those who often are not at the table or not in the room and being able to redefine what the room looks like. Get rid of that table, right? Get out there and and, and talk to children and, and educators and families and prioritize that voice in ways that I'll acknowledge is usually not the way that um, big systems ordinarily um, work. 
I feel like you just named two more mindsets that I'm like, Ooh, I want to keep <laughs> like front and center. Just this idea of like doing with not for. Yeah. Doing with not for or to, right. Nobody wants anything being done to them. It's the idea of what does it mean to authentically do with? And I think that just goes back to the learning and unlearning. I recognize that we're socialized not to move at this pace, not to be inclusive in these ways. So I want to name that this is challenging and requires support and requires um, patience, but also a a sense of um, urgency and focus and, and a relentlessness to to just ensuring that we're doing things differently. Yeah, definitely. I also heard in in your last response, just this mindset around seeing the interconnectedness of everything. (laughs) Yeah, and I think CI is great in that way, right? There are all these tools that map out. I know when you're always like, oh, there's the fishbone and there's a mapping system, the processes, and there's all these tools. And I think the art of that is the visual nature of being able to see the interconnectedness mm-hmm. between all parts of a system. Yep. And so I think that's the part that's really exciting. I think to have that awareness, uh, self-awareness as, as any district leader to say that the work you're doing or the work that your department does is directly tied to some other person's work. Um, and then ultimately, this is all tied to what a child will experience in a classroom. Yes. Okay. There are so many different places I could go right now, (laughs) but I have to go to, I'm really excited that you all are doing work around pedagogy. Yes. Because I think we have so many examples of improvement being used to improve things that are not pedagogy. (laughs) And often for those of us trying to improve pedagogy, we're kind of like, where are the great examples of people using improvement to improve pedagogy? So I love that the goal of, of your network is to improve the percentage of eighth grade students who are on track for success in high school and college, but that you all have really focused on improving math instruction as like a key lever to get there. And we've certainly found a lot. There's so much to argue about math being the next like equity frontier, really. Mm-hmm. And what have you found most exciting and most challenging about using improvement to shift pedagogy and essentially the instructional core? Because a lot of improvement work doesn't even touch that. Yes, Stacey. So I just want to, all of your points really resonate with me. You know, I, as excited as we are about CI in education, the examples of what it looks like and, and particularly around pedagogy is really hard to find a, a challenge that we're up to and excited about, but that at times can be really frustrating. So I definitely acknowledge, and I know many times we reach out to each other as organizations to make sense of this. Um, But I think there are so many things that we've learned about it. And I think it really just goes back to, you know, how important it is to adapt and internalize CI in ways that we own a little bit more in education. You know, the healthcare examples are compelling and they're powerful and they are excellent North stars and and, and help to make sense of things. But to realize the complexity of, of the education system, the ways in which it's rooted in the behaviors of humans and young people and, 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 and the role of development and relationships is, is really important. 
Um, And so would say that we have found that the way to do this work has been able to give ourselves the freedom and space to acknowledge that there aren't many examples. This hasn't been done in ways that we can point to and and follow in lockstep ways and that that wouldn't make sense. And it wouldn't make sense in a system that, you know, really has been plagued by racism and lots of inequity for many, many years. And so what we try to do is say to ourselves, you know, how do we go about applying any of the steps in these processes in ways that honor the great research and science that exists, but also takes into account the fact that we're doing something new. I would say for us, it has been about really creating the space to to try new things, to have some agency in the use of these tools and processes, to to be critical of of the impacts we're having, but also to name when something isn't making sense. And so I've appreciated lots of communities, not that there are many, but some communities that have been created to grapple with these tensions, like um, the PPLG um, offered by Carnegie has been like a really great space for for leaders who are committed to CI work to come together and say, well, what are all the tensions and things we're grappling with and how can we make sense of that? So yeah, I would say that at the heart of it has been um, being willing to try new things, being willing to say when we don't know what we don't know, um, and then also to share as, as quickly as possible when we think we are onto something that does make sense in an instructional context. Um, and that has been everything from like, what's the right grain size of a change idea? Or how does the theory of improvement really lead to an aim when we're thinking about instruction for such a diverse set of students? I think if we can continue to capture what those questions are, or how do you attend to a system that is historically racist? And that's to be like, these are big questions. You know, what are some of the challenges we have that just create more opportunities for us to think about how we're doing these things a little differently? For sure. Okay. I have to ask you if there is, and I used to think now I think related to improvement and your work of creating systems change, if there was something you used to think that now you think differently, what would you say? Mm, This is a tough one. I guess I used to think that it was important to engage in the conversation around whether or not continuous improvement is about incremental change or if it's about disrupting systems. I used to think that it was so essential to to get at that answer. And I would say a while ago, I've decided that that isn't the question. That is not the thing that deserves our attention, but instead it is about thinking about how CI gets positioned as one lever potentially of many that works in service of disrupting inequity in our systems for a system that, you know, stands as one of the many systems that have been built around race, racist ideals and designed to uphold white supremacy. I think a distraction can be engaging in that initial question. I think this work is complex. It is difficult. It will require knowledge and, and, and approaches and, frameworks and ideas that have probably even been yet to be be created. And it will also build on some of the amazing great work of marginalized communities who are also often not acknowledged and have been silenced. And I'm excited. And now I think that the opportunity 
is exciting. I think if we can shift the the conversation about transforming districts and systems for equity, that we can now include CI as one of the many things in our toolbox as we take on work that we just don't have an option to shy away from anymore. So I guess that's what I think differently now. That gave me chills, Tracy, because you just (laughs) hit on one of the dichotomies that makes me the most crazy. I'm like, can we stop talking about if CI is transformation or tinkering? Like it can be both. And hopefully it's, it has elements of all of it. Yeah. I think the both and is really an important, maybe that's another mindset we got to throw in there. Yeah. (laughs) But I would say the both and is really important. And, And to be clear, I think it is important whenever you're doing racial justice work to acknowledge where there's tinkering and where there is transformation, but would say that in this case in particular, while it's important to have surfaced that question, and I think there'll be instances where it's important to really probe there, that for the purposes of district transformation, I think we can all get behind that it's going to take a real concerted effort that employs a bunch of different um, really thoughtful ideas, and that there's really limited space here to kind of do the either or. Yeah, I love that. And I love that the work that you all are doing around on track and math is definitely transformational. It's far from tinkering at the edges. And I really appreciate all of that. Yeah. Oh, I'm realizing that I guess one point I, I didn't make, I know I talked a lot about learning or unlearning and our theories and improve our action and all these things, but I would just say something that's also deeply important to us is, is recognizing the role of content and being able to, like in the case of mathematics, recognize that there, you know, as you do new things and try new things, that the support that I often reference is the giving people the space to learn. And that means educators being able to improve their practice, deepen their content knowledge for school leaders or district leaders to build their content knowledge around their practice. So I must say, especially as someone um, who supports higher education, continuing education and education more broadly, is that really at the heart of this is learning and the ability to build expertise, both in the form of, you know, actually going through designed learning experiences, but also just through lived work on the ground. Yeah. Yep. That was fun. Thank you so much, Tracy. It was great talking to you today. It was really great talking with you too. High Tech High Unboxed is hosted and edited by me, Alec Patton. Our theme music is by Brother Herschel. Huge thanks to Stacey Calais and Tracy Frey Oliver for today's conversation. Thanks for listening.